you have your Bible, then please turn to Romans chapter 7. We're getting back to Romans after a few weeks in uh, just fantastic other passages of Scripture, and uh, you were blessed. I got to listen to all four of the sermons uh, that were preached while we were away, and what a blessing uh, just to know that, that the Lord has the same word for all of these preachers. Uh, and blesses his people through them, through the preaching of the word. And uh, I was blessed listening to them. I'm sure that you were as well. Uh, it was a blessing too. Three of those four preachers went through our expository preaching class, including one uh, from another church, uh, Joe Monagas. Uh, he didn't need to be there. He's already preached 60-some sermons at, at his own church. But, um, but it's, a, it's a, just a blessing that the Lord is uh, working and raising up preachers of his word. Um, we're back in Romans. Romans chapter 7 is where we are today. If you don't have a Bible, then get one of the Black Pew Bibles. It's on page 943, and that Bible is our gift to you if you don't have one, so you can take it home. Uh, Let's read together Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, In order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Guys, what we have here is two systems. Two systems. You are either under the law or you're in Christ. You're either married to the law or you're part of the bride of Christ. You are either dead in your sins or you're alive to God in Jesus. And that includes those who really, really wanted to try hard to work at keeping the rules before God. There's two systems and two systems only. The way that we describe those commonly that I have been so helped by the description that over the years through Reformed Protestant preachers has been uh, described is that there is either the covenant of works or the covenant of grace. The covenant of works is what you were born into. It's that system where you were signed up by birth to be under the law of God, where your only hope was perfect obedience to God's perfect law, and we, from the very beginning, were already dead in that because we were born guilty of Adam's sin. And not just guilty of Adam's sin, but also with the sinful nature that came from that, that overflowed in our own sinfulness. So that status of being dead in sin under the law compared to God's law for whether or not we will be justified, and the easy answer is no, you won't. We just call that the covenant of works. That's what everybody was born under. But the way that God saves people So we call the covenant of grace, or as it's called in Jeremiah 31, as Rick read for us this morning, the new covenant, the new covenant, where everybody who's in it 
It's not a mixed multitude of people who don't know God and do know God, but they all know the Lord. All of them, from the least to the greatest, and it's those who we, we have the law written on our hearts. We have the Spirit put in us. We are new because God has made us new in Christ. It's grace. It's a whole different system. And guys, even the people who think that they don't want anything to do with God, that they don't want anything to do with whether or not they would follow his law, that they'll set their own way, they know they're under that. They know they're under the old covenant of works because they'll still try to tell you the ways that they live up to the Ten Commandments, the ways that they are good people, the ways that they are this and that. And we know that will never save anybody. You are hopeless before God in the covenant of works, and what we need is the grace of God that has come in Jesus Christ. So I'm just telling you up front, that's what this passage is about. That's what Romans 7 sets us up to see. This is where, as this whole big chunk of Romans, all the way from chapter 5 to chapter 8, is all about our assurance in Jesus Christ, about knowing that in Christ that we are secure This is saying, look, believer in Jesus, you are no longer in that old system of tit for tat, look at the list and see how you line up to it, the covenant of works. We are now accepted in Christ. It's not just, are you doing these things better? In fact, it's not that at all. It's, have you left behind the whole system of whether or not you're doing good? And are you now in the system of knowing Christ? and being forgiven and receiving his grace. So, back in chapter 6, verse 14, it said this, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What Paul's doing now, or I guess we could even say what the Holy Spirit is doing now, as he breathed out these words through Paul's writing, is he is explaining what that means. What does it mean to not be under law, but under grace? Back when we were at Romans 6.14, we talked about that a little bit. That there's the system of the law, there's the system of grace. You're in one or you're in the other. And he's going to just expound on that and say, here's what it looks like to be delivered out from under the bondage of the law, to be delivered into the grace of Jesus. That's what we need. That's our only hope. It's our only hope. Chapter 6 of Romans was all about being dead to sin and now alive to God in Christ. Chapter 7 is all about being dead to the law, and now being alive to God in Christ. And one of the things that we see from that is that being dead to sin and being dead to the law are, get this, the same thing. And being in bondage and slavery to sin, and being in bondage and slavery to the law even though they might sound like opposites to people who don't know Christ, they're the same thing. Being in bondage to sin and in bondage to the law are the same thing. Guys, being a Christian is not about going from being bad to being good. Being a Christian is about going from being defendants in God the judge's courtroom to now being adopted children in God the Father's household. It's a whole different thing. It's going from being death row inmates who are just hoping to win their lives back on appeal to now being the bride of Christ. It is a whole different system, and that's what this is about. 
So let's think first of all about the first four verses here in chapter 7 where we see Christ presented to us as the second husband of believers. Christ is a second husband. That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? But that's the way he sets it up. That's the way he talks about it. So let's think about that. He says, first of all, in verse 1, that those who are born under the law, which is all of us, are bound to the law for life. He says, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, I've got to say there's some question here when he says, I'm speaking to those who know the law. Does that mean that he's speaking to the Jewish people, like chapter 7 is just for Jewish people and not for Gentile believers? Uh, I don't think that that's the case because it seems that this whole letter is, is written to a mixed church that's primarily Gentile with some Jewish believers there as well, and they're trying to figure out how they work this out to be all part of the same church and to be under the same law of Christ together, all those kinds of things, the same gospel. Uh, but he's, he has shown pretty clearly that there's a lot of Gentiles who know the law too. So you would have seen that back in those, those churches in those times that a lot of those believers uh, scattered throughout the Roman, uh, the Roman world as the gospel came, they, they would have come from a place where they were uh, the Gentiles who sort of hung around the tabernacle, or not the tabernacle, the, uh, <laughs> what am I trying to say? Uh, the, the Jewish places of worship. Synagogue, thank you. I've been, I've been away, so, yeah. But they would have been called God-fearing Gentiles. They would have known all about the law. Uh, they would have had all of these, these conceptions of it. And even those who didn't before, when they came to know Christ, they would have had an understanding of that. But I think also, he's not, he, when he says those who know the law, he's already said in Romans that even people who are completely separated from the Word of God, completely separated from the culture of God's people, who are on the other side of the world. You might call them the man on the island out there somewhere who's never heard anything. He's dealt with that already in Romans and said, you know what, they've never heard the written words of the law, but they know the law. They have it written on their hearts. He said this in Romans chapter 1, verse 32. He said, they know God's righteous decree. You hear that? He, he's, that whole second half of the chapter is talking about those people out there in the world, those tribes, people far away, that kind of thing, who have never heard a single word of the Bible, but he says they know God's righteous decree. And he listed a whole bunch of sins, and he said they know that those who practice such things deserve to die. This is written on people's hearts. He makes it even more clear in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, where he says, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Guys, I said this a minute ago. Even those who consider themselves that they want to have nothing to do with Christianity, that they want to have nothing to do with God, when you start talking to them about whether or not they consider themselves good people, they know exactly what you're talking about. They have a standard for right and wrong, and it looks a whole lot like the Ten Commandments, or at least the last six of them. They might not resonate much with the first four, because those are directly about our responsibility to love the God who makes us aware of all ten of those. But 
guys, it's, it is, when it says, I speak to those who know the law, I, I think he's, he's saying, look, there's, there's a familiarity with the law that will help you understand this concept, but this is not just for people who are scholars of, of the Old Testament or something like that. He says here that the law, and that's that law of God, that moral law of God, is binding on a person, he says, only as long as he lives. But before we get to the word only, I, I, I want to I consider it without the word only. It says here, the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. You know what that means? It means that human beings come into the world, into life, bound by the law of God. And you cannot escape being from under the law of God until you're dead. That's what it says. When it says a person is only bound as long as he lives, that means a person is bound as long as he lives. If you were born in a country such as this one, or really any other country, you don't have to sign up on a list to be obligated to keep the laws of that country, do you? You don't have to make some sort of a choice about whether or not you are going to sign up to obey the law. You just have to. You are under the law. And you're under the law as long as you live. You know, n nobody gave me a form when I was a baby that said, sign here so that when you start having a job that you have to file your taxes every year. I would rather not. But we're all obligated to the law. And, and even if we don't know that something is against the law, we can still be held liable for disobeying it. We're under that law. But do you know when being under the law stops? When you're dead. Nobody expects a dead man to file his taxes. Same with the law of God. Nobody expects a dead man in the grave to obey his father and mother, the fifth commandment, or anything like that. And so that's what he's getting at here. Of Yes, the law is binding on a person as long as he lives, but only as long as he lives. You need to know this, regardless of whether you believe or don't believe, the law of God has something to do with you. And, and if you would say to yourself, well, I, I don't know, maybe you came here with a friend or a family member just to, to kind of like make them happy or something like that. Maybe you come here with your parents every week and you're like, I don't know, but that's stuff. You're still under the law of God. You're bound to it. And you know it. You know it. Because you know the guilt of when you do something wrong. You know the feeling of guilt, and I'm here to tell you not just the feeling of guilt, but the reality of guilt, being guilty before the lawmaker who is your creator, your God. You are bound to the law of God, and that's a scary situation to be in because you have not upheld it. I know you haven't. None of us have. There is none righteous, no, not one. But guys, there's good news for us who come to Christ, which is this. We were bound to the law as our first husband. But now we're dead to him. And we've come to be bound to Christ instead. Here's what it says. This is the analogy of death and remarriage. Verse 2. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Now, that ought to be obvious to everybody. There are various questions about 
when is it biblically acceptable for someone to uh, get a legal divorce? And I'll put it this way. All of us who are Christians know that there are far fewer circumstances in God's eyes as revealed in the Scripture that would allow for divorce than in the world's eyes that just says, well, marriage is just a thing you sign up for as long as you're in love. That's not what marriage is. Marriage in God's eyes is a lifelong covenant bond that when it is broken, it is a sinful and horrible thing. There is no such thing as divorce where there is no sin involved. Where there has been a divorce, even the, either the divorce itself is sinful or the thing that caused the divorce is sinful. There is no such thing as a broken marriage that is not heartbreaking and terrible. But where a spouse dies, it's pretty clear, okay, you're free. You, 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 you may go on and marry someone else. He, says, he explains that a little more. It goes on with the analogy in verse 3. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. That was one of Jesus' direct teachings that was very difficult to swallow to the Pharisees and even to his own disciples. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she remarries another man, she is not an adulteress. Let me, just, let me just read you the, the, the words that came directly out of Jesus' mouth during his earthly ministry, not as though they're more inspired than these words. They're not. It's all exactly the same word of God, but I'll just read these. Here's what Jesus taught that was so shocking. He said in Matthew 5, 31, whoever, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's, that was not what they were used to hearing. He goes on and he explains it more in Matthew 19. It says the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He says, here is God's design from the beginning. Even though there's a lot of bad examples in the Old Testament and elsewhere, here is God's design from the beginning. One man, one woman, who are to be joined together in a covenant union to be one flesh for life. That's God's design. He says, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I just got to say right here, this is a little bit of a side note because this passage is not about divorce. It's just an illustration, but you need to know that as much as we think that recent events in American law have been what have broken down marriage and the family, it's not just from recent events. The, the, the institution of what's called no-fault divorce that didn't exist in America until I think the 1960s, that is something that has seriously harmed families and our society, and it is not God's design. It's not God's design. He, he says, why did, the, the Pharisees answered him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? 
And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Wow. Okay. So there you go. But, so that's giving the basis for saying this is a serious thing. This is a very, very serious thing. But if there has been a death, it's clear, it's obvious that not just under the law of man, but under the law of God, that the party who is still living is free and released and can remarry and there is no sin. So that's the analogy that he's bringing in here. I'm very tempted to start preaching about divorce and remarriage and all of the ethics and the potential cases and, and get myself in big, big trouble because everybody knows some special situation that is way harder than anybody knows that it really was. But I'm not going to get myself in trouble that way. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to say, look here at the, at what he, the reason that he's talking about this. The reason he's talking about this is not because he wants Romans 7 to be a chapter about divorce and remarriage. It's because he's using it as an obvious illustration that when you die, you're no longer bound to the law. If you are married and then you die, you are no longer married. If you are married and your spouse dies, you are no longer married. And here's the reality for you, Christian. You were born married to the law, but when you came to Christ, you died to the law. You died to the law and you are no longer bound to it. You are no longer in that relationship, that system, that way of trying to get to God. You're dead to it. And what are you now? You're now dead to the law and united to Christ. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, by the way, is the key to understanding all of chapter 7. All right? You want to understand the whole chapter, all of the difficulties that come in with the, uh, so many different interpretations of what it's talking about with the law and Paul's struggles and all these things. Verse 4, I think, is the key to all of it. He says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. It says here, look to Jesus. Do you know what Jesus did that nobody else has ever done? He was born under the law like us. He didn't have to be, but he was. The, the law that he wrote, he was born under it, obligated to keep it, and he did. You didn't. I didn't. Jesus did. There was no sin in him. He didn't even have original sin. He was born of a virgin. He didn't have sin that came out in his life in any way. He was tempted as we are in every respect, Hebrews says, yet without sin. You may think to yourself, well, I'm pretty good at not sinning in what I do. Well, God sees your heart, too. Maybe you're able to fool people about your external actions or about the way that you would use your words and, and get those under control in certain ways, but God sees your thoughts. He sees your hearts. He sees your intentions. He sees things inside you that you don't see inside you. He knows you, and he knows that if he were to judge you by his law, you would be found a lawbreaker. 
and you would be condemned. But guys, Jesus was not that. Jesus is the only one who fulfilled the law, who did every bit of it, and you know what he did as a law keeper who didn't deserve to die or to be condemned? He was condemned, and he died. He was falsely accused. He was ridiculed. He was spat upon. He was told he saved others. Why can't he save himself? And you know what he was doing as he died? He was saving others still. He was dying for us. And it told us back in Romans 6 that when Jesus died for us, that we died with him. It says, do you not know, Romans 6, 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And what that's getting at is that every single one of us who believe or whoever will believe, Jesus took us with him into the grave. He died for us by name, on purpose. And when we came to believe, it's because the death that Jesus died for us, the Holy Spirit then came and applied to us. When you have come to Christ, you have died with Christ. And you haven't just died with Christ, you have also come alive with Christ. And that death that you died in Christ, that death that Jesus died for you on the cross, that's counted as yours, is a death to the law. The wages of sin is death, and it's been paid for us. And the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the verse right before the one that we're reading right now. He has given us eternal life. We've died to the law, to the penalty of the law, to the power of the law, to all of the, the, the corruption that the law stirs up in our hearts. We're dead to it in Christ. And now it says, now you belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. You have a new husband, believer. You have been severed in that relationship to the law by death, by the death of Christ on the cross. And you've been brought into new relationship with Christ. You're now part of the bride of Christ. You've been united to Christ. And when God looks at you, he no longer looks to see how does he measure up lacking. He now looks and he sees my son, my child, united to Christ, clothed in Christ. Ah, Does that mean, by the way, when it says that that we have died to the law, does that mean that as Christians that we don't have any any kind of obligation to keep God's rules? I think it's pretty obvious that that's not what it means. I think it ought to be really obvious, partly because the illustration that he's going to use in the verses that we'll get to next week, that the first thing he brings up is the sin of covetousness, which is the tenth of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, all of these things that are your neighbor's. And, and that's something that I think we all agree on, no matter how you view, no matter how, you know, there's different kinds of ways of understanding the covenants and all these things that make people interpret Romans 7 differently, but I don't think there's anybody who would say, now that we're Christians, we're free to covet. We're free to look at what God hasn't give us, given us and accuse God of evil because that ought to be ours. No, the Bible says that covetousness is idolatry. That's what it says. 
So when it says that we're dead to the law, it doesn't mean now covet all you want and make idols all you want and disobey your parents all you want and murder all you want and lie all you want and steal all you want. That's not what it means to be dead to the law. What it means to be dead to the law is to be dead to that system where we were judged by whether or not we had kept the law. It is to be dead to the law for righteousness. As, as, here's what it says in Romans 10. Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. When you've come to Christ, that whole thing of am I good or am I bad, do I measure up or do I not measure up, is God going to think that I'm a good person on the day of judgment? That whole system is dead to you. He calls that system the law for righteousness. But he says Christ is the end of that for everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But on the other hand, there's a righteousness that's based on faith. He goes on and says, here's what that looks like. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, lawbreaker. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is not a righteousness that is through being good, through keeping the law. It is a righteousness that is Christ's, that comes to us by faith alone. It's a relationship with God where we're no longer depending on the law, we're depending on Christ. And that relationship with the law that's severed by death, well, we have a relationship with God that's not going to be severed by death because Jesus is raised from the dead. And it says here in this verse, you belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead, meaning he's not going to die. You're not going to lose that relationship. You're not going to come to Christ and then die to Christ. No, we come to Christ and live eternally. The way Jesus put it was very simple. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. I could just say that as the whole sermon, but then we wouldn't be here long enough. Believer, you're secure in Jesus. You died to the law, you're alive to Christ, and he is not going to fail on you. He's not going to die again. Now, did he save us from the law so that we could then be lawless? No. He says, here's the reason. This is the very end of verse 4. It's for bearing fruit. In order that, he says, here is the purpose, the thing that God wants to happen, that God made this happen for, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, does it say in order that we may become law keepers. doesn't say that. I think it's on purpose he doesn't say that. Does he say, in order that we may become good, where we were bad? I think it's on purpose he doesn't say that. Although goodness is listed as part of the fruit of the Spirit. That's a whole other sermon. But in order that we may do this, may bear fruit for God. This is a, a, a different way of knowing God. This is a different way. When you were apart from Christ, your relationship with God is 
do I measure up to these things? Will God accept me or not? Do I measure up? In Christ, our relationship is, he's already said I measure up. I don't. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. But he's declared me righteous. And what am I going to do now? I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to love him. I'm going to be transformed from the inside out. Not to try to measure up, but out of worship to the God that I now know and love. I want to bear fruit to God for the glory of the God who has saved me. There's a difference between law-keeping and fruit-bearing. And it's brought out all over Paul's letters. He says in, in Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. In Galatians, he, he contrasts these two systems where on the one hand, you can, you can either be walking in the works of the flesh this was the problem with the Galatians is that they thought that by the keeping of the law and even things like circumcision that they could then make themselves completely saved because they would then you know, be fully compliant to these rules. Well, he says, if you're trying to, to measure up by that fleshly working, here's what's going to happen. The works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But what's the alternative to that? It's this, but the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit, hear that? The fruit that we would bear to God, not the flesh that we would use to work our way up to him, but the fruit that we would bear by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he says this, against such things there is no law. It's not in the law system. It's the fruit-bearing system. That's what we've been brought into. We need to bear fruit. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Let me just say this. If you look in your life, Christian, you look in your life and you think to yourself, I'm not bearing very good fruit right now. I can detect some of those works of the flesh that were listed in Galatians. I can detect some of those in my life. And the fruit that's listed there, I'm lacking pretty heavily in some of those. So what do I do? Well, Jesus says, here's what you do. Abide in me. Abide in Christ. Go to Christ, the one that you've been joined to. Not saying to yourself, when I get to a point where I am now keeping the law well enough, that's when I'll come back to God. But no, the Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Come and abide in him. He says, here's how you abide in me. You abide in my word. That's what it says in John 15. And, and, and we are to come to Christ, abide in Christ. This is through just the, the normal spiritual disciplines, as we call them, or means of grace, of spending disciplined time in the Bible and in prayer and gathering with our church family and going out and doing evangelism and things like that, as we abide in Christ, he bears fruit in us. He bears fruit in us. 
So he saved us, <coughs> excuse me, so that we would bear fruit. Now, there's the, the two systems, verses 5 and 6. Uh, it kind of says, here's what it looked like when you were in that old system of the law, and now here's what it looks like in the new system. But in the old system, verse 5, they had that old fleshly way of life. He says, here's what it looked like. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. You would think that the old system of trying really, really hard to be good and obey the law, you would think, well, that's going to turn people better. But here's what it says. While you were in the flesh, that law didn't make you better. It said it stirred up sinful passions so that you bore fruit for death. This happens in two ways, okay? This can happen in the one way that's obvious, where people just say, I'm going to do whatever I feel like, and they live however they want, and they just openly rebel, and they're in open sin, and it's so obvious. That's one way. The other way is to be like the Pharisees. The Pharisees who thought that in the old system of the law, that they could just really, really obey hard and then please God and be good people. But you know what happened? Jesus looked at them and he knew their hearts. He knew your hard work at law keeping is creating a facade on the outside that people look at and it looks beautiful. But God sees the heart and he knows that there is death and ugliness. He knows that on the inside of the heart that what's happening is that the sinful passions aroused by the law are bearing fruit for death. And he can say, you Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs. Paul, who God used to write the letter of Romans, God also used to write the letter of Philippians. And in that letter, he talks about when he was in that old system. He talks about when he was a Pharisee, when he was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. When I say Paul is a Pharisee, was he ever among the Pharisees who were opposing Jesus in Jerusalem? We don't know. He, he lived in another city, but he had definitely come to Jerusalem and been trained there. And he says about himself in Philippians 3 that he had been trained in all of these ways, that he had all of these credentials according to the Jewish law. He even says that according to the law that he was blameless, meaning that he worked so hard in his life by that fleshly law system that anybody who would have examined him to try to see where do we compare him to the written law of God and find him lacking? They wouldn't have found him lacking. But do you know what fruit that bore in his life? It bore the fruit of death. Because he says in that same passage where he says, regarding the law, with regard to the law, I was blameless. He said, in my zeal, I became a persecutor of the church. It came out those dead bones inside him, no matter how hard he was working by the law to try to externally obey, his heart was in opposition to the God who wrote the law. So that when he saw the people of the God who wrote the law, who knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead, he was murderous toward them. He held the, the coats of the people who picked up stones and killed Stephen for testifying to the risen Lord Jesus. He was on his way to Damascus 
to arrest Christians and have them hauled off to potentially be killed when the risen Jesus met him and when he died to the law and came alive to Christ. It's amazing, isn't it? What I'm saying here is that in that old system, and what I guess I, I shouldn't be saying, the Bible is saying it, that in that old system where you're just trying to say, am I being good or am I being bad? Am I living up to the law or am I not living up to the law? Am I pleasing God or am I not pleasing God? Is he going to accept me because I have kept the law well enough or is he going to reject me because I don't care and I just don't, don't do what, what I'm supposed to do? In that whole system of good, bad, law-keeping versus law disobeying, there is no life. The fruit that you bear in that system is fruit for death, and that's it. That's all there is there, is death. All you get as a wage from God is the wage of sin, which is death. But verse 6 is there. But now, this is for those who have been born again, who have come to Jesus in repentance and faith, and know that he alone is the source of our salvation. He says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code or of the letter. As this is what we call the covenant of grace. Verse 5 is the covenant of works. Verse 6 is the covenant of grace. As we have come into new relationship with God in Christ, it says we're released from that old system. We're released from that captivity to the law and captivity to sin, captivity to death. And now how do we serve God? As lawless people who just say, i got to get out of hell free card, I can do whatever I feel like. No, he says, now we serve in the new way of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, no longer walking by the flesh, but now walking by the Spirit. The last verses of this passage, the last verses of verse 6, where it says, not in the old way of the written code, Occasionally, people look at that and they think, okay, well, this is talking about that we're supposed to obey the spirit of the law and not just the letter of the law. That's not what it's about. It is true. That's not what it's about. If you were going to look at this and say, okay, I'm going to please God by obeying the spirit of the law and not just the letter of the law, you know what Jesus has to say about that in the Sermon on the Mount? That makes you more condemned, not less condemned. Because if you're saying to yourself, I'm going to obey the letter of the law that says you shall not murder, then most of us are going to say, great, I've never done that. I've never broken the letter of that law. But Jesus says, here's the spirit of the law. If you have hated your brother in your heart, you are liable to judgment. Well, you could look and say, well, the law says technically, the seventh commandment, you you shall not commit adultery. And I know some people have done that. Sad thing, but I've never done it. I've never violated the letter of that law. And you know what Jesus would say? Jesus says, if you've looked at a woman with lustful intent in your heart, then you're guilty. So if we look at this verse and we say, okay, well, that's good. The good news is that we now obey the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. No, that that makes you worse off, not better off. But by God's grace, that's not what it means. Here's what it's getting at. The old way, the old way was the way of the written code. Not that there's a problem with it in any way. Jesus said not a single jot or tittle of it is going to pass away. But here's the, here's the problem with the old way of the written code. 
If you say, my relationship with God is I will come and I will see what is written here and I will see how I live up to it and that is my way to God, you will die. You will be found lacking and if you think that that's not the case, you are not being honest with yourself and you're not being honest with the text either. So the old way is, will I live up to the written code? But the new way is, you are already secure in Christ. We serve in the Spirit. We serve as those who, even though we are lawbreakers, have been declared righteous in Christ. So the written code is not going to come after us and clobber us in the day of judgment, but Jesus will keep us to eternal life by his grace and his righteousness because he died for our sins and he rose from the dead. Because we were buried with him by baptism in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life. In 2 Corinthians 3, it says that that this is a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law of God is good. We're going to talk about that more as we keep going through Romans 7. It is God's good rules but we can't be saved by God's good rules. We can only be saved by God's good news through God's Son who brought us life. You can't be saved by the law. You're saved by the gospel. If you were under the law, that old covenant of works, you're trying to do what God commands so that you can be judged righteous. That's your only hope. But if you're in Christ, in the covenant of grace, then what we're doing is we're trying to do what God commands because He's already declared us righteous. In that old way, in the covenant of works, we were trying to perform good works so that God might turn his pleasure toward us and let us go to heaven. But in Christ, in the covenant of grace, God has already turned his pleasure toward us. He's already brought us in before we ever start any of our performance before him, before we've done anything. In the old way of the law, we're trying not to be condemned for our sin, but in the new way of Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He was condemned in our place. In that old way, our relationship with God depended completely on how we compared to his moral standards, but in the new way, our relationship with God only depends on our Redeemer, Jesus who died for our sins and rose for our justification. One way to think about it is it's like this. When when you were, how long ago was this now? 15, 20 years ago. We we watched uh, a couple of those early seasons of American Idol where uh, that was when they had the the old judges that were really mean. I haven't watched it in years and years. And uh, you get these people who came out and you know, they, they thought that they were pretty good singers. I apologize if any of you guys went and auditioned and you're describing a traumatizing event in your life. I don't know. Um, but they thought they were pretty good singers, and then they'd come in there, and they, they'd have these judges who would say, have people told you that you can sing? And they would rate them, and they would tell them exactly what they're getting wrong, and they would be so mean and tell them, sorry, you are not good enough. And they would try to perform, but they would be found lacking. But compare that to what it's like when you're a parent and your toddler comes in and sings you a song. 
Is that toddler going to be doing a perfect job singing? No. <laughs> Even the best singing toddlers in the world, if you were going to judge them on, on the standards of those judges at those early seasons of American Idol, you know, there, there would be some pretty harsh criticism. You know, why, why are you off key on this note? Why are you doing this? What, what's wrong there? Why does your face look weird when you're singing this? All kinds of ways that you could criticize them, but as a parent, what do you do? You're delighted. Before they ever open their mouth, you're already delighted that they're standing there and they want to do something to please you. And, and, and whatever the performance is, you're just delighted and you clap and you say thank you so much and you give them a big hug and you just love them and you accept them. That's the difference between the old way of being united to the law and the new way of being saved and united to Christ. If you're apart from Christ, your only hope is to be judged perfect. Not just pretty good, not just better than the guy who lives next door to you, but perfect or else. And you will not be judged perfect, and you will die in your sins if that is the way that you approach God. But when we come to be united to Christ, we've been joined to him. We've been brought in. We have been adopted. We are his children. We are his bride. And we come up with our pitiful performance, but it's beautiful to God already. When we are in the new way of the Spirit, when we believe, when we've been united to Christ, God is already pleased with you before you ever start your performance, before you ever bear any fruit, before you ever do a good work. God is already pleased with you, and you're secure so that you're not under that bondage to say, will I do good enough to be accepted? But you are accepted so that you can bear fruit for God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us in by the blood of Christ. Thank you for accepting us in Jesus. Lord, we were outside. We were condemned. We were lost in our sins even as we thought that we could try to be good in certain ways or that maybe someday we'd get better. But God, you, you for, us, for us who have believed, you have brought us in and we've been cleansed and we've been made new. We've been declared righteous already. So I pray that you would help us as believers not to walk in that old code, in that old way of thinking that our relationship depends on our performance, but to trust in Jesus and be secure and bear fruit by the Spirit. God, I pray for those who are outside of Christ today. I pray that you would show them where they are. I pray that you would terrify them for the judgment that they would bring on themselves for their disobedience, no matter how large or how small or how open or how hidden. And I pray that you would show them not just your righteous judgment, but your righteous love in Jesus. I pray that they would come to accept Christ as their Lord, as their Savior, and to be united to Jesus and to be found pleasing to you, not by their works, but by the work of Christ. Lord, save people. Help us to walk, not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.